Hi, I'm Ellen Carter. And I'm her son, Charles Christoph Carter. We are both writers and have set up this podcast so that we can share the stories we write with you. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks. It really helps. As you may recall from last episode, Joe Martin discovered something in the brush piles at John Fayette's farm. What he discovered led him to arrest Chauncey Cuthbert, John Fayette's hired hand. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yardwork, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Chauncey wore a red and black wool Macintosh jacket, jean overalls, and heavy boots. He sat quietly, head down, slumped in a wooden chair, his hands still cuffed behind his back, in the pink 8 by 10 foot interrogation room. It was painted pink because Eve, the dispatcher, had read an article that said this particular shade of pink tended to calm people down. None of the officers liked the color, but they had noticed that it seemed to work its magic on rowdy drunks and volatile prisoners who were left alone within its confines for 40 minutes or more. Joe had often wondered if it was the color of the room or the fact that they had time to cool off within the small space. Joe hadn't bothered to change the color. Eve had purchased the paint herself and then convinced two of his deputies to come in on their day off and help her to paint that room that calming color. Although several of the drunk and disorderly detainees who had spent time in the small room had experienced a calming sensation, they had nonetheless mentioned upon release that they were thinking about filing a lawsuit for being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. Three empty chairs sat across from Chauncey on the opposite side of the lacquered wooden table. He looked up as Joe and his two deputies, Todd Johnson and Bill Bannister, walked in. Chauncey's face bore acne scars. His light brown hair was cut short, the top parted on the left and combed over to the right side. His face was an expressionless mask. Joe sat down in the middle chair. Todd sat to Joe's right and Bill to his left. The three men placed their hands on the table and stared at Chauncey. None of them said a word. After ten minutes of silence, Chauncey asked, Why am I here? Bill was the first one to speak. Why did you do it, Chauncey? Why did you kill her? I don't know what you're talking about, Chauncey replied flatly. Let's be truthful, Chauncey, Joe began. You were the last one to see Linda Morgan alive. Her mother saw you pull away from the Morgan home with Linda sitting in the front seat of your truck. 
There are witnesses at the restaurant in Lancaster who are willing to testify that they saw you and Linda there the night she disappeared. The two of you argued and then left together. One witness sitting by the window stated that she saw Linda get into a car with another man and drive off. That same witness said you jumped into your truck and drove off behind him. I didn't follow him, Chauncey retorted. I went home. Did you go straight home, Joe countered? Yes. I don't think that's exactly true. I have a witness that says you were involved in a car accident. Chauncey's body stiffened. That's right. I forgot. How can you forget about a car accident, Joe asked. It was just a fender bender, Chauncey replied. Whose car was it that you hit, Joe asked. Chauncey didn't reply. A second witness recognized the car that you hit. He said it belonged to Howard Burdett. What about it, Chauncey? So I hit Burdett's car. It was an accident, Chauncey replied guardedly. What happened to Howard Burdett? I've checked with his job and his neighbors, and nobody's seen him. I don't know what happened to that bastard, and I don't care, Chauncey exclaimed, his voice edged with anger. You know, John Fayette told me an interesting story about Howard Burdett and Linda Morgan. He said he caught Howard fucking her one evening last summer under a tree at the edge of his property. He said they were going at it hot and heavy until they realized he was standing there. You're lying, you son of a bitch. She was my girl, Chauncey screamed as he tried to rise from his chair. Sit down, Joe growled. Chauncey glared at him, but slowly took his seat again. We found Linda's body in the brush pile you built for Fayette. We found what was left of her, that is. How do you know it's her? Chauncey asked, a triumphant smile spreading across his face. There was silence for a moment. Bill Bannister raised his right hand and wiggled his fingers. Chauncey's brows furrowed. There was a puzzled look on his face. Because we took fingerprints, you dumb fuck. She worked at the bank. She was bonded. Chauncey frowned. We found the remains of another body that we think is Howard Burdett in the brush pile Fayette burned this afternoon, Joe said evenly. It's just going to take us a little longer to get the identification on that one. He paused for a moment and Todd broke the silence. Chauncey, what did you do with their heads? Todd asked in a soft, quiet voice, a voice that sounded out of place, almost eerie. Chauncey glared at the younger deputy and then grinned. They're in the trunk of Burdett's car. And where's the car, Chauncey? Joe asked. It's at the bottom of the quarry, Chauncey replied glibly. You sick fuck! Bill Bannister screamed as he jumped up from his chair and leaned across the table, trying to grab Chauncey around the neck. Joe and Todd both pulled Bill off of the cuffed man and forced the deputy back into his chair. We grew up together. You ate at my house. We hunted and fished together. You butchered them like they were fucking animals. That's what they were, animals. She told me she was pregnant with his baby. She let that bastard touch her. They deserved to die, both of them. They're going to put your sick ass away for a long time. You're never getting out. Those boys doing hard time are going to love you, Bill exclaimed. 
A realization seemed to come over Chauncey. His eyes opened wide. He looked straight ahead. You think they'll make me a woman? I don't want to be a woman. He slumped forward and began to cry. Oh, I see you're starting to get the picture now, Bannister said coldly with a smirk on his face. Joe shook his head slowly. Todd, put him in the cell in the back. The gears ground once, twice, as he pulled against the gear shifter of the stolen Jeep. He pulled a third time, harder, the sharp metallic grinding sound of metal against metal spiraling louder with the increased muscle he was applying, the resulting sound grating on his nerves. He looked down at the white line pattern on top of the shifting knob, dimly illuminated by the light from the dashboard. God damn, I'm pulling straight back. Why won't it go in? He pulled back again, this time with a forcefulness and a determination born out of total blind frustration. There was a loud clunk. The red late model Jeep lurched forward, throwing him back against the seat as it picked up speed. Shit, yes! Jasper Hemphill shrieked as he pressed his foot down hard. Like all beginning drivers, Jasper's foot was heavy on the accelerator and light on the brakes. He glanced at the dimly lit dash and quickly located the speedometer. The needle was pointing at 50, but he failed to notice the orange glow of a warning light on the bottom of the instrument panel that indicated a possible brake failure. A horn blew. He looked up. Lights from an oncoming car blinded him. He squinted. Holy shit, he exclaimed as he swerved wildly to miss it. The jeep ran off the road, hit the curb of the sidewalk, and became airborne, its engine screaming wildly once the tires lost contact with the paved surface of the road. Jasper's head hit the roof along with old crumpled brown paper bags, half-eaten sandwiches, a few beer cans, a slew of soda cans, pizza boxes, and an old sneaker. The high, tinny sound of the colliding cans was deafening. The vehicle landed in Beatrice Merriweather's front yard. Jasper's foot still pressed hard against the accelerator. It was headed straight for the wide steps of Beatrice Merriweather's Arlington Black accented buttermilk cream painted wraparound front porch. Ah, shit! Jasper exclaimed as he cranked the steering wheel to the right for all he was worth, holding on tight, fighting with the hard black wheel with every bit of his being, trying unsuccessfully to get the vehicle under control. He managed to just barely miss the front porch steps, instead plowing through Beatrice Merriweather's prized heirloom Brandeis red tea rose bushes, the same rose bushes she had spent weeks waiting for after she ordered them from the nursery, up in Portsmouth. The jeep plowed through them like a sharp knife through soft butter. It gouged out great swaths of turf, its tires throwing dirt and grass to either side of the red vehicle. In its path lay Donald and Irma Beecham's waist-high picket fence. Beatrice and Irma had spent a great deal of time perusing paint store brochures until they could decide upon the perfect color for the picket fence that would complement their two large Victorian houses that the fence separated. They had finally settled on centennial white glory. The red jeep Jasper was still wrestling with smashed through the waist-high fence, 
catapulting splintered wood high into the cold, dark November air, followed by the contents of their two galvanized steel trash cans. Like a turn-of-the-century slapstick silent movie, the carefully separated garbage, paper, and glass was combined midair and scattered erratically across both perfectly manicured lawns. As the jeep careened back onto Morning Glory Lane, it was minus one headlight that had been lost in the mayhem. Jasper tried to apply the brakes, but the jeep just wobbled from side to side. The dash light that had been a bright orange now turned a solid red, indicating brake system failure. God damn, the brakes don't work on this piece of shit. Out of nowhere, bright lights and a loud horn drew his attention. He jerked the wheel, swerving, narrowly missing another oncoming car. The tires screeched and whined as he took an extremely wide, quick left off of Morning Glory Lane and onto the shoulder of Route 3. He wrestled with the wheel yet again to get the vehicle back on the pavement and under control. Fucking Sunday driver, you should watch where you're going. You could have killed me, you stupid bastard asshole, he screamed and then laughed, enjoying the thought of the paralyzing fear he imagined must be on the face of the person driving the other car. Under the night sky, Maynard Nash maneuvered his cruiser through the twisting turns of the mountain road. He turned onto Route 3. Anyone in the vicinity of the south side of town, come back. Maynard picked up his handset. Eve, it's me, Maynard. I've just turned onto Route 3. What's going on? We just received a call about someone driving a jeep like a maniac down Morning Glory Lane. I'm in the vicinity, Eve. I'll check it out. All right, Maynard. Over and out. As Maynard approached the outskirts of town, his cruiser lights picked up a red, battered, late-model jeep ahead of him, speeding down Route 3. The driver swerving to the right and then to the left, almost losing control but finally regaining it before accelerating down the narrow highway. Damn it, he swore as he turned his lights and siren on and gave chase. The jeep slowed, wobbling from side to side, but continued in the direction of town. He followed it, his flashing lights and screaming siren unsuccessfully directing the driver to pull over. This guy is pissing me off. Maynard closed the distance between the vehicles as they entered a lazy curve. The driver of the jeep swerved. His taillights came on. The jeep bucked three times and slowly rolled to a stop. Maynard pulled up behind the jeep. I'm going to throw the book at this out-of-state asshole, Maynard said as he pulled out his flashlight and stepped out of his cruiser. As he reached the jeep, the driver's door flew open, and Jasper Hemphill jumped out. Damn piece of shit, Jasper swore as he kicked the flat tire. Hell, Maynard, what are you going to do, shoot me? Jasper asked, switching his attention from the disabled vehicle to the deputy. Jasper, what the hell do you think you're doing? Maynard asked, moving his hand from his weapon and grabbing the 11-year-old by his upper arm. He stared at the boy for a few moments, waiting for his own adrenaline level to wane. Where did you get this jeep? Maynard finally asked sternly, looking directly into Jasper's eyes, still gripping the boy's arm tightly. He knew Jasper was too young for a driver's license, and the boy certainly didn't own a jeep. Hell, his family didn't own any type of motor vehicle. Did you steal it? Maynard asked when Jasper failed to respond to his first question. Jasper struggled and tried to pull away from Maynard. 
Hell, let go, Maynard, you're hurting me. Stop struggling, Jasper, I'll put the cuffs on you, Maynard warned. Where'd you get the jeep? Did you steal it? Maynard asked again. Hell no, I didn't steal it, Jasper replied. Then where did you get it? Jasper looked defiantly into the deputy's eyes and said nothing. After several moments, Maynard said, fine. He took the boy to his cruiser, opened the back door, and put him in. What the hell do you think you're doing, Maynard? I'm taking it down to the station house for questioning, just like I do with any criminal. Hell, I'm no criminal. You stole that Jeep. When I run the plates, I'll know exactly who it belongs to. You messed up big time, Jasper, Maynard said and shut the door. Maynard walked around the front of his cruiser to the driver's side, got in and picked up the handset. Eve, I caught our maniac. What the hell do you mean, maniac? I'm no goddamn maniac. You saw it, Maynard. If that crappy tire hadn't blown and that damn piece of shit hadn't run out of gas, you never would have caught me. Maniac my ass. Pipe down and buckle up, Maynard retorted sternly. Jasper's mouth moved, but his words were no more than an irritated mumble. Eve, we're going to need a flatbed. There's a red jeep on the shoulder of Route 3 just down from the Dairy Mart. It has Virginia plates. Could you call Carl Stegman and get him out here with his rig? I'll call him right now, Maynard. Thanks, Eve, Maynard said and placed a handset back in its cradle. Maynard held the slender boy by his upper arm and guided him through the front door of the single-story station house. He was small for his age. Maynard walked with the young boy through the swinging wooden gate, past the dispatcher and into the bullpen, past three decks to a black wooden bench against a far wall, near a row of black metal file cabinets. Jasper Hemphill, you were the maniac we got the call about? The one who was joyriding down Morning Glory Lane? Eve Hogan, the dispatcher, asked. The lanky little boy smirked. He never would have caught me if those tires hadn't blown, damn cheap pieces of shit. Boy, you've got a mouth on you. Watch it. There's a lady present, Bill Bannister said as he closed a file drawer. Joe walked down the hall and into the bullpen. What's all the commotion? He asked, glancing at Jasper and Maynard. Bill Bannister interrupted Joe. Sheriff, we just got an APB from over in Lancaster. It's important, Bill said, glaring at Jasper. Jasper raised his middle finger at Bill. What's that? Your IQ or your mother's telephone number, Bannister replied. You son of a bitch, fuck you, Bannister. I don't have to take that from a two-bit piece of crap like you. Maynard yanked Jasper hard. Watch your mouth. Joe turned to Bannister. Bill, you know better. Joe turned back to Jasper. Have a seat and don't move, he said in a stern voice as he motioned for the boy to sit down on the nearby black bench. Maynard, keep an eye on him, will you? Joe asked. Sure thing, Sheriff, Maynard replied. Bill, can you bring that APB down to my office? Joe asked as he turned and headed down the hall. And now a preview of our next episode. Joe gets an APB from the sheriff over in Lancaster regarding a child who has been killed and mutilated. Could Chauncey be the perpetrator? Is it really all that simple? Mrs. Dalton calls frantic about her 10-year-old daughter, Judith. 
Where is Judith Dalton? If you'd like to get the next free episode early, please consider becoming a Patreon member. It only costs $3 a month to join. That's less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who to enjoy access to compelling original storytelling. That's not the only benefit of being one of our Patreon members. In addition to early access to free episodes, only our Patreon members will have access to each new weekly episode of the second half of each book after the free portion of the book is over. And that's not all. Our Patreon members will also be treated to our periodic commentary as well as having access to the entire back catalog of our episodes as our podcast goes forward. So please, click the link in the show description now if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member. Also, please note that you can follow us on Twitter at sdreadfuls. We will use Twitter to make any announcements concerning the podcast, like letting you know when the free portion of a book is about to end and when a new book will begin. We'd like to thank you for listening to Serial Dreadfuls. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Mm -hmm.